welcome to Stargate SG Fun, a podcast where we talk about episodes of the classic series Stargate SG-1 and spend more time on the episodes we like and think are more important. I'm Trishy Matson. I'm Andrew Pontius. And I'm David Schaub. And today we are going to talk in depth about Season 2, Episode 9, Secrets, a little bit about Bane, and more about the Tok'ra, Part 1 and 2. So let's start off with Secrets. And David, do you have a recap for us? I do. Carter and O'Neill travel to Washington where Carter's dying dad is trying to manipulate Carter's career, and a reporter threatens O'Neill with publishing about the Stargate program before the reporter is conveniently killed in a hit-and-run. It's been a year, and Jackson returns to Abydos with Tilk. They find Charay pregnant and temporarily free of Gould control. They plan on taking Charay back to Earth, blaming Apophis's enemies. But Heru-Ur shows up, and the baby is born, making this story way more believable. Between Tilk's cleverness, O'Neill's knife-throwing, and Charay's force of will, the team survives, but Charay leaves with Apophis. Yep. So there's a lot I liked about this episode, and not much that I didn't care for. Well, let's start with Charay and Daniel. I liked how Daniel treated Sheree in this episode. He was freaked out at first, of course, but when he realized that it really was Sheree in control and not Amonet. Amonet, right? Amonet? Yeah, I think that's how they pronounce it. Anyway, he was very good, I thought. Yeah, it took him a while to get over being a jerk, though. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It really did. (laughs) I both didn't like it, but I also thought it was totally like... That's Daniel Jackson to a T, kind of being a jerk and kind of being a good person. I mean, he was being a jerk, but he thought that it was just a fake by the snake. A snake fake? <laughs> yes. <laughs> when he realized that it really was Charay and not all just some scam, he was as kind and reassuring as he could be. He did not yeah. blame Charay for her fate, as she was afraid he would. He stood up for her, making her choice when her father was just telling her what to do. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there was a lot that I liked about that. I was a little concerned when Daniel was hitting full-on jerk level, whether he was actually upset as a function of the pregnancy. That was... Yep. I believe they made it clear that, you know, he was not blaming Sheree at all for being taken by Apophis and impregnated by him in the form of his host. Although the the alternative, which is the host having children the way What's-Her-Name had children. Hathor. That would have been even worse. So, yeah. (laughs) Yes. This apparently was some kind of plan by Apophis, who wanted to create a son by himself and Sheree, their hosts, for him to become his new host. I guess he's getting tired of his old body or it's wearing out. And I'm assuming that that would be, like, super looked down upon by the other gold. Like, this is somehow a very uncool thing for him to be doing. Therefore, he's having to do it in secrecy. They don't really go into that at all here, but it is an oddity that you would think the gold could really do whatever they want. But this seems somehow uh, taboo among the gold, which is a strange concept. Well, I think you can do whatever you want to do with the uh, human slaves under your control, but I guess the Gould culture itself is a little more protective of its customs or something. But he may have just been keeping the whole thing secret because he didn't want his potential future host body to get killed before it was even born. That's true, too. Okay. Anything else about that plotline? Oh, so much more. <laughs> <laughs> the, the beginning is a little interesting where we see Sherry's dad, and it's nice that we're getting the same actor again. Mm-hmm. Though I don't really quite understand what inspired that video recording that wasn't them just going. Like, there was a bit of a setup there, which I didn't quite understand in the first conversation with Hammond. Where, of course, they were going to go to Abydos. <laughs> I didn't understand why it was in question. Usually this show, and we'll get to it with the Takra, when they have a conversation with Hammond about the plot, it really works well. And this one, it was a little strange. It kind of felt like they had to fill a few minutes. It really yeah, did. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> with, with this plotline and other plotlines, it did feel that way. I think the real concern I had watching this is we had the conversation about Sharae in the pilot. We looked back on that conversation when we went over the movie where I think Sharae was stronger personality for the most part and a stronger character. She was a sort of a leader of rebels. And 
It hurts a little bit that this feels like it's pulling back to the pilot where we see a metaphorical rape of Share, and here we see that no, she has actually been raped too, and this is still the rule that they choose and the plot line they choose to give this character. And I, I still find that, that a little unsettling that that is what they constantly decide to do with this actor. Yeah. And also, I was kind of thinking about the, David, what you had talked about in terms of the, the show actress and the portrayal versus the movie, in that she is portrayed as kind of a damsel in distress almost entirely in the show when she wasn't in the movie and they do continue that here as well like she's not she's not making any decisions on her own even though daniel was kind of encouraging her to do so or encourage her to be independent of her father but she really isn't and everything she does is a function of someone else doing something to her or making decisions for her and it it is unfortunate that they shooting her yeah yeah it's too bad that that's the best they can come up with for a character for this. Um. But she has gained a tiny bit of agency by the end, because yep. when Apophis returns and is taking her away, she sees Stargate 1 team, but she does not reveal them. And so either she's managed to suppress, or she's she's in a power struggle and she has just enough power to stop Amanet from saying anything, or she may have reached some kind of accommodation with her. Don't know. Yeah. There would have been helped if SG-1 had actually done a better job of hiding. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> it was like, what? They can totally see you. What are you doing? But yeah. It, it was not the best hiding job. I, I had forgotten. I, I, I remember this episode vividly because it's, it is seeing Sheree again for the first time in a while. And this, this is very important to Daniel's arc. But I had actually forgotten how much time they spent on the battle in the end between Harrower and his forces and uh, SG-1 to sort of try to stop him and, and, and do their thing. And so Harrower comes in, gets a little complicated for an SG-1 episode where, you know, you got Apophis coming in from above and you got Harrower coming in through the Stargate and they, they never quite run into each other, but they both kind of deal with SG-1 to one degree or another. You know, that battle did seem like relatively involved for, for SG-1 and Harrower gets to use the personal shield. Mm-hmm. Which I had, I had forgotten that he kept using that. I think doesn't um, doesn't Jack throw a knife at him, right? Yep. Again, kind of using that that ability to use lower level tech to get through it and to do their thing. So you know, the team actually does. Although I think they do about as much as they need to for the plot. Again, it doesn't really feel like they're, but it, but they're being smart, right? They're being smart in how they deal with Arrower and how they they take him on and and keep him from from staying. I did like that part of it as well. I thought, like in terms of this being the A plot, and this is what it felt felt to me like this was the A plot. It wasn't just about Sharae. It was also about kind of dealing with kind of everybody, right? Dealing with Apophis and dealing with were and dealing with the guards. And yeah, so I, could, I kind of liked that they threw everything into it. I also liked that there was some scenes with Daniel and Teal'c. Teal'c is also, you know, kind of being very suspicious at first, but then he comes around earlier than Daniel does. And he kind of gives the perspective of, you know, hey, you you can't just sit out here and mope. You got to, we got to do something. Mm-hmm. And even though you're hurting, I have to bring up this thing that I think is important. I really like Teal'c's role in this. And, you know, he also gets to get the drop on some baddies in it as well. So I really liked his, his part in this episode. It feels like this was meant to be sort of a Daniel episode, but I think Teal'c Probably got more to do than he usually does, because he normally he's just standing there looking stoic. Uh-huh. But he gets to do a little more. Teal gets the drop on everyone. <laughs> yeah. So I do like I do like that as well. I also thought it was funny that um that they obviously didn't have very very much money for this episode. So we get no, you know, large establishing shots other than I I believe they did one pyramid shot that was probably from another episode. <laughs> and then it was all like close in shots with like part of one alleyway. And then, you know, the building next to it and like, okay, yeah, that's a, that's a set that's, you know, they put some blankets up and that was all they needed to do to make this episode happen. <laughs> I thought that was, thought that was pretty funny. You know, the fact that they really stretched the budget on this one, you know, cause I was kind of looking for it cause I knew Daniel was such a jerk at the beginning of it. And, you know, by the end, was he still going to be kind of a jerk? Nope. He, he did it. he said the right things to his wife. But again, it's still kind of the reset, the back to the status quo, right? Like, no, they don't bring her home right. with them. She really he is still going to be with Apophis, although there's a kid now, right? So there's a kid, so they got to deal with that. But the kid is also being hidden somewhere else away, so nobody has to deal with that for a couple more episodes, right? But uh, but there at least something happens, right? At least okay, now there's a kid, 
Hey, and uh, and you know, and considering that season two has had more ongoing plots mm-hmm. with with arcs than in season one, really likely we're going to see that kid again. Yeah, season one has a fair number of things that are mentioned in one episode that seem like throwaway details that do that come happen back, yeah. to recur later, but. Season two is absolutely more along the lines of ongoing arcs that are followed from episode to episode. I really quite liked the plotting here. I have issues with how they were using Sheree, but I think given what they decided to do, I think they did a quite a good job. I also really quite liked Sheree manipulating her gold at the end. I, I think she sort of just maybe talked the gold into, ha, huh, they're there. Who cares? They're not worth noticing. I, I like the idea of it's a manipulation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just they're below her notice. Or maybe there's some kind of bargaining, you know, if you'll just let us keep walking and not saying anything, I won't fight you so hard. It, it's possible. So yeah, I, I really quite liked that they gave Sherry that at least. That worked quite well. I mm-hmm. adore in this episode that they come up with a plan and Chilt comes up with a plan and then Haru-Ur shows up and therefore the plan suddenly becomes way more complicated, but it still is exactly the same plan. I really quite liked the complicated fight at the end. It has the problem some Stargate episodes have, which is, boy, does everything have to happen at exactly the right time. Yeah. <laughs> but they do it so well in this episode. It's almost like a stage play where you have people showing up at just the right times, and I thought it worked really quite well. I really enjoyed the plotting and the long fight and the relatively slow knife penetrating the shield. It worked, I think, quite well. I, I bothered a little bit that they, they didn't even try to bring Sharae home, but it was necessary for Tilk's plan, because Tilk had planned to pretend to be a Horus guard and have that defend the structure of this massively complicated thing he's putting over both of the Gould's eyes, and it works really well. So I was I was pretty happy with it all in all, even if I did have the one question, which is, is it known whether Sharae's actor was actually pregnant with Jackson's actor's kid at this point of the recording this episode? Because I think they may have been married at this point. No clue. I'm afraid I don't know. I don't know. They, they had a child around 98. So it is around the right time that part of the reason for the plotting of this episode may have been <laughs> that the actor was pregnant, in fact. But I don't know. Meanwhile, back in D.C. Right. <laughs> so, yes, I enjoyed the reporter subplot. Obviously, someone somewhere has been leaking. I suspect it's Mayburn and company. But then again, I always suspect Mayburn and company. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, he uh, confronts Jack and, and lies and lies. I particularly enjoyed the misdirection where the reporter quotes Jack as saying, going across the galaxy. And Jack says, oh, I was talking about a galaxy-class transport plane. (laughs) Good thinking. Good thinking. Then just as as, uh, the reporter says, I'm going to publish anyway, and there's nothing you can do about it, he gets hit by a car. Jack runs to him just in time for the reporter to glare accusingly and basically say, you did this. And Jack says, I didn't do this. And once again, I blame Mayburn. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Not not only hit by a car, but the car is a hit and run, so the driver of the car vanishes. Of course. Just to be extra suspicious. Yeah, it turns out... I, I said to the screen that I was watching this as O'Neill's hand was under the guy's head covered in blood, and I just had to say, O'Neill, you have blood on your hands. Yeah. <laughs> he does. He does. He literally has blood in his hands, yep. It's true that it could have just been Mayborn doing it, but it really did feel when Hammond denied any connection to it, but somebody had to have done it, right? It couldn't have just been a, an actual random accident. The two scenes which really worked it for me here was O'Neill holding the guy when he died, and then O'Neill at the end, where he does not believe for a moment what Hammond is telling him. Mm-hmm. That really is what works the best, is the idea is getting out, someone's spreading it out. The fact that no one has spread out the fact that this exists is kind of unrealistic to begin with. It's not a surprise that it's leaked. <laughs> Right. But it's just that scene at the end where O'Neill's standing there and he just does not believe that it's an accident. And you're going, well, we probably believe that Hammond didn't do it. Oh, right. I'm perfectly willing to believe that Hammond didn't do it, but I find it very hard to swallow that it was just a random accident. Here, I'll just get onto my little hobby horse of, uh, the reporter is right. The world should know about this program. (laughs) No matter, you know, they may make the right decisions or the wrong decisions, but, you know, the world almost got completely destroyed and we were lucky and SG-1 managed to save the world. But this should not be 
a United States proprietary secret that aliens are mad at us and keep coming to try and destroy Earth. So they need some sort of Sokovia Accords, maybe? They need to bring in some kind of United Nations Security Council thing on it. There is a whole set of plot lines where the best way of dealing with the strife on planet Earth is to have a common enemy that's not on the planet Earth. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say or it's hard to imagine how this would go badly at the UN. Like, what are you going to do? You obviously need for everyone to get on side before humanity gets wiped out. And maybe that wouldn't work out that way. But it just shows how much this show does not want to change the status quo. Right. And like this show has a concept that not everyone knows. And that apparently includes all the other governments. And uh, they seem really set on holding that. And I don't know if they hold it the entire show or not. I'll find out. There was an old... Uh... I think it was the 90s, maybe 80s science fiction show called Seven Days, where the United States had a time machine that could go back just seven days to change catastrophes. And they kept it a secret for several seasons. And then it turned out that the Russians had one too. And there was a lot of blame back and forth about how they were keeping this secret. So it can be done in an interesting and entertaining way. Sure, in real life, if the U.S., told the, you know, Security Council that, oh, by the way, there are aliens coming, it would probably degenerate into a giant hairball and argument instead of people being sensible and uniting against the invader. But <laughs> I just can't believe that it's the right thing to do to keep it a secret <laughs> from the rest of the world. I'm going to put a lantern on it. There's a thing where, like, you need the shows like this movie series have to decide how much they're going to diverge from the world we know about, mm -hmm. while keeping to their sci-fi premise. And it, it is a lot easier for a show to be able to say, oh, yeah, everything else is staying the same except for this one piece. Because if it diverges too far, then it's not recognizable anymore. And then True. It's a little, maybe a little less fun to, to watch in the way we've been watching it. This is like the C or the D plot, because the plot of this is actually, <laughs> right, like, Samantha Carter dealing with her kind of jerky father and him trying to sort of get her to agree to go into the, what, an astronaut program, right? NASA? Yeah. Sam gets there and runs into her dad, and it turns out that General Jacob Carter has been pulling strings to get her out of her boring deep space telemetry job <laughs> and into NASA. Yep. And he won't listen when she says, no, Dad, I'm needed where I am. <laughs> Yeah. He has a very hard time listening um, and, you know, keeps telling her, but it was always your dream. But obviously, it's also his dream to see his daughter in the NASA program. And they don't quite yell at each other, but there's a bit of coldness on his side. Uh, and he finally, finally says, hey, I'm dying of cancer. That's why there's this rush on this thing. But I don't want you to stick around. Goodbye. Well, it is the end of the episode. So, you know, he has to go. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, fathers and daughters. Obviously, she's been striving her whole life to live up to some kind of vision or goal, or just to live up to her dad. We'll hear a little more about their relationship a couple of episodes down. Yep. I really quite like that this is the three-parter of Carter's Dad trilogy. Mm -hmm. I, I enjoyed that, but really, <laughs> most of this episode is just her dad is a jerk. Yeah. Pretty much. You can kind of see why he's being a jerk, or not exactly why he's being a jerk, but the motivations for his doing the NASA string pulling. But he really doesn't listen well. He does not. And though I do find it funny how he is always trying to uh, needle them about their classified projects, which I would imagine is considered impolite in the military, but I don't know. Playing the I know, you know, I know yeah. game <laughs> can be amusing, probably depend a lot on the personalities and inter-service rivalries and stuff. For funny things, I did enjoy O'Neill's timing of saying, General, Captain, General, Waiter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he also gets to get my name right. There's another Colonel O'Neill with one L who has no sense of humor whatsoever. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, that was cute. Well, I think that's about all I want to say about this episode. It's a good, solid one, good pacing, and it does leave yep. quite a few strings dangling, but yep. we'll get back to some of those. Well, and I can finally stop tap dancing around what Charest Gould's name is. Yes. <laughs> mm, mm -hmm. There's so many times I wanted to just say Amonet when we talked about, you know, the premiere of the of the series. 
And like, nope, can't. Don't want to mention it yet because they haven't actually said the name. And now they finally have. So get to hear what her ghoul's name is. So, yep. Okay, on to the next episode. Bane. Bane, yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a really short recap about it. And I'm not going to give it in the voice of the other Bane because apparently that's going to be really annoying to people. Aww. I was doing that so much better when I was practicing it to myself and it sounds horrible now. So yeah. <laughs> apparently both of you actually want me to do that, which is, I guess, probably a reason not to. Uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, so... Teal gets stung by a giant dragonfly-like bug on an alien world, as you do. Carter brings in a specialist who rats Teal out to the NID. Teal escapes NID custody and goes on the lam. And Christopher Judge fulfills the writer in his contract as a main cast member of SG-1 to spend most of an episode with a child actor. They, of course, find a way to save Teal, and there's the requisite comedic moment with the kid to end the episode. Wow. <laughs> and that's pretty much all you need to know. So there's a lot of bad writing in this, like just a lot of lazy, bad writing. There's like a moment where, oh, they're in a ghetto, and like... Teal'c is going to deal with gang members. It's just bad. But on the plus side, there's Dr. Frazier. Get some Dr. Frazier moments. And Mayborn. And we get to actually see Dr. Mayborn in, in the flesh again. And, you know, so he's he's a baddie, but I think the actor has a, has fun with him. So although even then, the, the lines that they give him are pretty, are pretty ridiculous. There's also an attempt at sort of body horror, but they pretty much, the only thing they can do with it is wrap Teal'c in cobwebs. Which makes no sense, but... And it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not particularly horrific in any way. So yeah, you're not missing anything by not looking at this. An imminently skippable episode. <laughs> There's only really one moment that I really like in it, which is at the end, after the Allie the Street Rat kid who had a water gun who helped Teal'c. Teal'c returns after he's all better and not only gives her a bigger and better water gun, but plays with her. And soaks Daniel after Daniel asks, should you have given her that? And he says, how else would she defend herself? So that was cute and nice. <laughs> the rest of the episode, <laughs> really just fast forward to the last five minutes and you've got it. Yeah, the one episode with Carter, with the kid. And I think that went better because there was actually more to it than just, oh, hey, look, a cute kid. There was a back and forth about what was going to happen to the kid. And here, there was just no tension whatsoever. Like, you knew they weren't going to let Teal'c die. And what was happening to him was not particularly interesting. And it's really, it's too bad because the Teal'c-specific episodes, there just haven't been that great in season one and season two. Mm -hmm. And this is this is the addition. I don't think it's one. the actor. I think it's just that the writers didn't know what to do do with them. They really, they really don't. So, we're moving on. Yep. Okay, Takra part one. Tokra? Tokra. Tokra. Are you the Tokra? Talking with the Tokra. Against Ra. Tokra Part 1. Carter has a vision of Tokra fleeing to a Stargate address. SG-1 travels there to find the Tokra. With some of Jolinar's memories, Carter gets the Tokra to meet with SG-1. Carter gets to know Jolinar's previous mate, Martouf. They learn that the Tokra's numbers are falling as hosts and symbionts die together. The Tokra are confused by SG-1 not wishing to become hosts. And the Tokra have difficulty trusting people who find their existence disgusting. O'Neill follows one of the Tok'ra who seems sus. Oh, and Carter's father is about to die on Earth. There's no way that could be connected. Is that really all that happened in the first episode? Yes, uh, there's some, some very convenient timing going on here. Yeah. <laughs> is that really the, the plot of part one? That's it? That That is all that happened in yeah. part one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The last 15 minutes of part one kind of just starts getting slow. Yep. And it started to scare me because by about halfway through part one, you know what's going to happen. And then the other half of part one, it still hasn't happened yet. So I was a little concerned going into part two that the obvious answers of you have dying people um, didn't come up in part one. But we'll get to part two. It ends with no conceivable solution to the, this horribly complicated problem. Right. Right. So SG-1 is seeking allies, as they do. And when they talk their way into, at least let's not all shoot each other right now and get to talking, we meet a 
There's a strange leadership structure, <laughs> sort of structure. There is a guy who seems to be a leader at first, and then they take them in and meet another leader who is played by Sarah Douglas, who was Ursa in Superman 2, if you're wondering. Oh, and that's Queen why she looks in, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And also Queen Taramis in Conan the Destroyer, various other roles. She was also Pamela yes, yes, on V. She was in V. With yes. a different voice modulator. Very busy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Sarah Douglas plays uh, Garshaw the snake and Yosef the host. And there's also a council. So, yeah, the Tok'ra, one of their problems may be their leadership structure. <laughs> They're not a flat structure at all. <laughs> well, and they also spend an awful lot of time talking with these aliens who don't seem to be of any use to them. Right. Like, don't they have other stuff to do? You would think so. I don't think they do. They just <laughs> seem to be hanging out, waiting for something to happen. Right. They're waiting for their spies to find out stuff. Their spies embedded in other systems to report back to them or something. They had fled here, and they're, it turns out, establishing another base somewhere else because their bases apparently always get found. And, well, we find out in part two more about their bases always getting found. <sighs> okay. Uh, we do have some nice conversations between Carter and Martouf, where he explains about the symbiotic relationship. Carter is slightly freaked out. She refers to herself as feeling schizophrenic, although really it's more like disassociative That's disorder. Not what that means the wrong ailment. Do yes. not tr do not go to SG one for <laughs> medical advice. They are not very good Definitely at it. Definitely not. No, <laughs> she's a doctor. But she's not that kind of a doctor. Clearly not. <laughs> so there are some nice character moments in here, but certainly the episode does not stand on its own. You should immediately go on and watch the next episode if you watch this one. Yeah. Because it's just too frustrating otherwise. It occurred to me, like, watching it now, when I watched it originally, I didn't get that feeling that it was too slow. And maybe that was because I was younger and more naive, who knows? But it did really feel, I think, like there was enough things going on for that very first time you watch it when you don't know anything about how long the series is going to go on, you don't know what's going to happen next mm -hmm. week, that it did feel very satisfying to me. And it, it feels a lot less satisfying to me now because I'm watching it with maybe more analytical eye. And just like everything takes longer. Like the beats that would normally be in an episode where it would go fairly quickly to get past certain scenes, they just stretch everything out. Like they stretch out the first meeting with the aliens. They stretch out the discussions. They stretch out the ongoing, you know, okay, now you meet the next person, now you meet the next person. There's more people that they meet and there's more discussions that happen. Just everything takes so long. And it really does feel like there's scenes coming up in, in part two that are very important. They probably felt like they couldn't squeeze those into one episode with everything else they had to do. They just had to stretch everything out. And it, For the most part, I actually yeah. don't mind it because I found the writing of both parts to be fairly strong and the acting of both parts to be fairly strong. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it, it just concerned me a bit in part one. And this is what I'm finding with these Stargate two-parters is I watch the first part and then I go, hmm, I, if that's how it's going to flow in part two, I don't know if I think they're going to get the landing right. And then part two hits and it hits pretty well. And spoiler that part two hits pretty well here. But the part ones make me concerned about the part twos frequently. <laughs> and for, yeah, that's happened in both cases. But in both cases, I think part twos have held up fairly well. It is definitely interesting that they pull their punches a little bit for part twos. Yeah, I think part of the reason the pacing feels so slow is that they're explaining all this stuff. And since Andrew and I have watched the episode before and knew what was going on. Get on with it. You know, yeah, all of these explanations are, <laughs> we know, we know. Um, but of course, you didn't know the first time around. I really liked all of the stuff with Hammond. Like, I think Hammond does an amazing job of being considerate of Carter's feelings. And mm -hmm. yep. also, I find yeah, I nice. love how Hammond, even with him also having a military mind, doesn't really understand what's going on in Jacob's head. And it tries to be considered to Jacob and Jacob kind of brushes him off. Right. And I just I really quite like the use of Hammond in the episode. It's not very fast, but I think it's well done. Mm -hmm. I like it when Jacob again starts to needle Hammond for secrets and it's like Hammond goes anything except that. Right. I really quite liked all of how it's done. But I agree that it's a little slow. 
I'll mention one thing that jumped out at me this episode that I completely ignored the first time through is that when Sam is talking to Martouf about Jolinar and everything, Martouf tells Carter that uh, actually this Jolinar that you keep calling he, yep. Jolinar was a she. Well, actually, symbionts don't have gender, but Jolinar always had female hosts, except for the emergency situation at the end. And Carter immediately corrects her pronouns and starts referring to Jolinar as she. So I just enjoyed that. Yeah, the one thing I didn't expect the show to do, which I, I think I was kind of happy they did, was playing a pronoun game. I wasn't expecting a pronoun game in Stargate, but they kind of had Martouf run with he as well up to that point. Mm -hmm. for the reveal. And I was hoping that Gould were non-gendered by nature. Mm -hmm. And they do that fairly well. Therefore, it is sort of a choice of what gender they pick as their hosts, which also can make sense. It's like they were trying to do something well. And I think maybe they did it better than they were trying to do. I think that holds up surprisingly well for an early 90s show. It seemed convenient that they could play it away such that they would pair Carter with a male Tokra. It felt a little contrived to make that happen, but eh, it, it worked pretty well. Yeah. One of the things that I really liked about that first episode where Carter was the Gua'uld was that, you know, her demeanor totally changed when she was that Gua'uld. That Gua'uld was coded masculine, really, in the end. Yes. And she she did it really well. Like, Amanda Topping really did that well to play something very different than herself. And of course, it wasn't just that it was coded masculine. It was also a very severe Mm -hmm. character, which they totally don't do in this episode. I do kind of feel like, even though it presumably was the same writers and the same time, because it was the same season, it really does feel like it's almost an entirely different character in an entirely different Tok'ra society than this, where people are kind of much nicer and much more bland. Jolinar, in the in the beginning, was what, very martial, mm -hmm. kind of arrogant in a way that a Gua would be arrogant. Some, some people are sort of that way here, but much less. And it, it fit with what the episode needed. But it doesn't necessarily fit together very well with each other. A couple other things um, in terms of gender. Apophis calls Amonet his queen, in, I think even in the pilot. Mm -hmm. So they are obviously gendered. Uh, Apophis is male, Amonet is female, and maybe you could argue that away as being sort of just the roles they need for humanity to play gods, but eh, it felt like it was a little more than that. So it does feel like they had genders. Yeah, maybe humanity bleeds over into them a little bit. Maybe, yeah, yeah, I think that's quite possible. And the other thing is that when they had that dream sequence with Carter being Jolinar, and Carter looks at herself in a mirror, she's looking at herself in the mirror, because they don't necessarily have an actor to play Jolinar, but she's dressed in, like... Pastels. Yeah, like coated women clothing. Pastel veils, basically. It seemed pretty clear from that moment that, oh, of course, Jolinar was supposed to be female. If Jolinar is wearing that in this experience, which is supposed to be a real something that really happened, then of course Jolinar is female. I think I remember when I first thought like, yeah, and again, it's true that I kind of didn't remember the, the pronoun game so much in this episode because it seemed that the episode was being so clear about Jolinar being a she, but you know, again, maybe that's just subsequent history kind of bleeding out into my mind when I remember these things. I was actually a little confused when we saw the episode with Jolinar because Jolinar was presenting sort of male there. And I was thinking, gee, I thought I remembered Jolinar being female. <laughs> yep. So apparently I'd remembered how this came out, but not the mistake at the beginning. The problem was Jolinar had to be untrustworthy, someone that would come off as sus to the SGC. Mm-hmm. And that really just required right. her to be pretty extreme and pretty gold about it. Mm -hmm. Right, it's what the episode needed. Yeah. It's exactly as you said, Andrew. So I, I think they just pushed it maybe a little too far for how these Tokra act. But on the other hand, maybe Jolinar was just a bit of a jerk. And yeah. uh, these Tokra are nicer. And also that Jolinar really was also under a rather huge amount of stress at that point. True. <laughs> True. True. To give some credit. <laughs> He had already broken, apparently, how the Tok'ra are supposed to behave. They were in a host that didn't want them. Their previous host just got killed. They're being hunted by an assassin. Like, Jolinar had really been having a bad week. Yeah. So maybe there's something to be said there, whereas these Tok'ra pretty much feel in charge of their surroundings. And, I mean, I kind of like how these Tok'ra work. They still operate a bit like a ghoul. They 
interpret how the humans around them are acting as assumption of how humans get treated. It's like, you'd like to be near us. Obviously, you would like to be a host. Why else would you be here? What other use do humans have (laughs) other than for us to go inside them? Yes. So there's still a fairly self-centered arrogance to how the Tok'ra see the universe in that they could see no other possible value for humanity. And it's, of course, funny that that still is the primary value we have for them. Right. Presumably, these Tok'ra have not spent much time at all in societies where humans are in charge. And so they've always been dealing with the agricultural illiterate humans So naturally, they would feel superior to them. And it's probably a hard mental habit to break. I do like O'Neill's one line, which sort of feels like a question the audience may have asked in season one. Why do you talk like that? And what's with the glowing eyes, huh? (laughs) (laughs) A wonderful audience question. Right. One thing this episode does not answer is how long the Goa'uld symbiote can live with or without a sarcophagus. Basically, this presents that humans can live 200 years with a Goa'uld in them, and that can be extended for thousands of years, maybe with a sarcophagus. But it is unclear to me generally how long a Goa'uld by itself can live across the number of hosts. I'm going to assume quite a while. I don't remember. Certainly multiple hosts, but I don't remember if we ever heard a limit. The answer presumably is however much is needed for the episode. That is true. Um, So, (laughs) How many thousands of years do you need it to be old? (laughs) When Apophis is presumably the same Apophis as in Egyptian history, which would be like 7,000 years old, something like that. In the ballpark, yeah. Mm-hmm. They've been using sarcophagus, and I don't know if that extends the Gould's life right. as well as the hosts. I don't know. I like the uh, mention of Daniel's experience with the sarcophagus, that right. perhaps yeah. the mm-hmm. Gould are really just such absolute jerks because they use the sarcophagus so much. Right. I kind of like that implication that this bit of technology may actually be part of what's warped this entire civilization. That ties into something a little bit I wanted to talk about, which is how vehement the Tok'ra are, that they are not gold. And so for them, gold seems to be more of a cultural, organizational description than a species label. The gold system lords. Right. As opposed to the Tok'ra nicer (laughs) snakes. (laughs) They are the rebellion, but you don't know what they would replace the system wards with if they had the chance. Yeah, they're a little kinder and gentler, but I think they would want to be in charge. (laughs) (laughs) I did like the structure where they come as an alliance and then the Toker don't understand alliance. They misinterpret that. Right, right. You want to ally yourselves with us. You want to join with us. Uh, (laughs) Not quite like that. that. (laughs) After that, I appreciate that the Toker partially refuses the alliance just because if you view us as monsters right how can we have an alliance and i, and I like that it's the, that miscommunication yeah. and they're coming from different points is they're so culturally far apart mm-hmm. that it's a challenge and I, I like that that is sort of the falling out initially in part one yes although i think it's funny it, i think they almost explain it too well for it to be like a more realistic cultural clash and of course they need to explain it well because they want the watchers of the show to understand what's going on right they could have made it a more clear and said that we need to to um, marry your daughter and our son together for us to end the war like it, it's almost a marriage of convenience mm. plot structure but they don't actually use the metaphor right okay y'all ready to move on to part two I just want to make the one reference that Colonel Makepeace has a bit of a too-much-on-the-nose name. (laughs) And he showed up and he just caused trouble. Well, actually, one other thing I wanted to mention is if they were using humans as hosts and they were coming from a gene pool of people who mostly came from ancient Egypt, Mm. boy, these people sure are white. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (sighs) I got nothing. They also don't have accents at all. I could go on and on, like, you know. Having people from Vancouver, Canada, portraying ancient Egyptian stock is never going to end well. But yeah, 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 whatever. Well, they raided other periods of Earth history, too. Um, it's true. Mongolians, yeah, a whole bunch of places that aren't white. Norse. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little unclear still where those other humans came from. I don't know. I haven't seen all of those episodes, but it's... Yeah. Yeah. The only people I've seen that definitively have come to Earth post-ancient Egypt were the Asgardians. But I don't know. We'll see. All right. Moving on. Yes. The Tok'ra, part two. Please. Yes. (laughs) 
Sam figures out that the B-plot is actually the A-plot, suggesting her father becomes a Tok'ra. Now she's getting him a job. O'Neill and Carter return to SGC to reason out the plot with Hammond. Carter and Hammond go to give a job offer to Carter's dad, Jacob, who has little to lose, so agrees. Jacob and Selmak have a wonderful little meet-cute. It turns out the system lord Gaulds have suddenly learned the location of the Tok'ra from a spy. O'Neill not only finds the spy's old host, but also the new host, earning <laughs> yeah. Garshaw's trust. Selmak succeeds in healing Jacob's body and they escape. SGC has made new friends. Yep. I would have been so upset with this episode had Sam not come up with that plot element within the first five minutes. Like, she got there right away. So it's like, okay, I can watch this episode. Mm -hmm. Because it was just, it just, (laughs) by the end of part one, I was dying. It's like, oh my God, you have a father who's dying of cancer. Yep. Ah. Right. Well, before you even get to the open credits, you see Sam kind of sitting by herself and obviously deep in thought. So hopefully that's what she's thinking about. And hey, it is. Yay. Great idea. Go do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, I was very happy to see that. And it uh, definitely was a good kick to this episode, which I think runs uh, even better than the first one, certainly in terms of pacing. This episode also has the team getting together with Hammond and discussing the plot. Mm-hmm. But in this case, I love every moment of it. This has the the thing where you go to the base commander and they play devil's advocate to the entire plot that's going on and you have to work it out with them. And I just, I loved that scene. Beautifully (laughs) covered what you can use Hammond for as a way of just explaining things to the audience. And it works. It also includes the great line, if these were your everyday run-of-the-meal greasy-ass gould. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. So Jacob, to me, seems either very brave or very rash or very trusting of Sam and company. He obviously has almost no clue of what he's getting himself into before he actually gets to talk to Selmak. So there are these aliens and you want me to do what? (laughs) Holy Hannah. And I do wonder a little bit just how many medications he was on for his cancer. (laughs) Is there a consent issue there? (laughs) I enjoyed that scene, too. I I liked the slowly just making it a reality to Carter's dad. I like the fact that, well, it's still a security issue, but now you've been authorized to see it. I really quite like when he realizes what's being offered to him. He asks, what's the catch? And Hammond goes... It's a doozy. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. Yes. I just, I really quite like the writing of this episode altogether. And a lot of these scenes with Jacob, I think, are really well done, which is impressive considering how much of a jerk he was in the introduction. Yeah, I really loved the moment when Hammond and Carter show up and you just got clearance to find out what she's been doing. Sam says, we need your help, Dad. And he laughs and says, what, the Pentagon wants me to give a message to God? (laughs) I just loved that. (laughs) I remember when I first watched it, I really liked the scene with him and and Selmak. I think the older I get, the more I think that this was probably written by people who didn't have much experience with being really old. Mm. Because I don't think it really conveyed that really well. Like, Samak is really old, like a lot older than most people. And Jacob is also relatively old. And I, I do think that, you know, they kind of went back and forth like, well, we, you know, we have to do it anyway, and you're funny. And those were good enough, but I wish that they could have given some sense of the fact that these are people with a lot of their own experiences in life and that they you're coming together with their own prejudices and their own experiences and their own ways to learn and not to learn. And I think more could have been done with it. I think it's fine the way it is, but uh, in hindsight, I think more could have been done with it. But You, you wanted a little more gravitas? I yeah, yeah, I yeah. The way they played it was, well, we don't really have time for us to get to know each other. And yes, that's true, but I agree to an extent because I think they wanted to set up saying, "Okay, you should talk to me, you should talk to my host, we should have this conversation. I should decide if I like you." I like the line to say, "I've decided I like you." Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then there's these other lines because Jacob gives the line, "My only other choice is death, and that isn't acceptable." Well, I don't know if that's a good reason. Like, it's not a bad reason, but yeah. is it a good reason? And there, there's sort of this pragmatism versus idealistic. Are we a good pair? 
for this little meet cute between the two of them. But I think for the most part, the two actors, I think, pull it off perfectly well. Oh, they, yeah. They, yes. they both have a lot of charisma and it just mm-hmm. it just carries it through, definitely. But I also think the, the fact that Samak was able to heal him, like, really quickly. Yeah, that was a little <laughs> sus. I mean, you know, not only did she have time to cure his cancer and give him a lot of energy to run around and jump through <laughs> stargates, she even cured his arthritis while he was at it, before he even woke up. My understanding is the Gould give their hosts the same healing capabilities that the Jaffa have. And we have seen that act pretty quickly on occasion. Yeah. I mean, they, they needed to do it. Yeah. We also don't know exactly how much time passed between uh, cuts. But in general, I mean, it, it worked. It's, we were kind of nitpicking at this point. Although a bigger nitpick is the way O'Neill captures not just one spy, but two spies, because they openly carry around technology they shouldn't have. In the same box. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, really? Is that the best you can do? And that felt like they were they were rushing to get through important parts of the episode. And really, really? The- they wanted it to be a little more complicated and they kind of succeeded, but it made it a lot more complicated. I missed it in the first time I watched the episode that when we see Kordash die, that was just Kordash's host dying. Right. And I'm assuming that mm-hmm. one Gould can go into a host that another Gould's already in and like eat the first Gould. Like, I don't quite know what happened there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That did not sound pleasant because they didn't have a spare host for uh, the Kordash. That's true. true. Gould. So there, there there was some oddities there. Yeah, there must have been some kind of power struggle. I didn't even think about that until you mentioned it. So yeah, I, I it seemed like they maybe made it a little more complicated. I quite liked it when O'Neill explains to Genshaw what he saw, and Genshaw just freaks <laughs> and just gets everyone moving. And I quite, yeah. I quite like that degree of trust that she already had with O'Neill and uh, how much he she believed him. It's unclear exactly why at that much that point. But yeah, I, I think the plot just got a little too complicated for their ability to handle it. Yeah, well, I, I liked that at that point she was not trying to deal with the council at all. She must be kind of the executive officer yes. or something uh, and, and only brings in the council for policy decisions or something. You need to get the board of directors only every once in a while, every couple of months. David, you said this at a couple of points in our episodes that, you know, everything had to happen a very particular way. And I think that's true here as well in that O'Neill was unprompted describing technology that was unmistakably old. And I think that's why she believed him was because like, otherwise, how would this random human know what that stuff even looked like? So that was the proof that she needed to believe him and to to take action based on him. But of course, that required these other Toker members to be completely indiscreet with what they were doing. The first time I buy it, the the first time I buy it because when O'Neill follows Kordash and sees him holding it, Kordash is a gold, effectively. And he's not going to make any assumption that this stupid human is going to have any idea what this technology is. Yeah. Like, I I buy the underestimating it at that point. And the catching the first host, I buy entirely. But I agree, catching the second one was uh, just too rushed, too quick, unnecessary. It didn't take away from my enjoyment of these two episodes. Yeah. And, and overall, you're like, okay, so, you know, they end. And this is another one of these things where it goes back. <laughs> goes back to the status quo for the most part because Jacob isn't going to be hanging around uh, the SGC. But it also is something a bit new that, okay, now, well, now this character who we only got introduced to like three episodes ago is again going to go away, but at least he's going to go away in such a way that we, we can see him again for other episodes that require him. Again, it's kind of how season two has been working so far and uh, we'll be working further like that as well. But yeah, I think it was nice to have a happy ending instead of this sort of slightly changed status quo thing that SG-1 is doing now to be really happy instead of just kind of bad but acceptable. Well, in season one, they would go to alien planets, meet aliens who are way less technologically advanced than them, and make friends, and that doesn't help them very much. And in season two, they go off to other planets, cause huge amount of problems, (laughs) eventually meet up with aliens that are more powerful than them, and actually come to some degree of an alliance at least sometime in the future. There definitively is a change from season one to season two where they're making friends with way more powerful people in season two. And not pissing them off. Yeah. 
Right. This is one where the status is sort of quo, but you've seen the world vision open up quite a bit more with these allies. Exactly. I admit that, yes, if we don't hear about them very much, it's going to start to be annoying. But we'll see how that goes. We will indeed. I really liked a little bit at the end where we again have the dialing gates race. You need to be able to dial out before the other person finishes dialing in. Mm -hmm. And the answer seems to be local DHDs are way faster at dialing out than uh, SGC is, and that certainly helped. It leaves me still with this horrible desire that incoming and outgoing event horizons were different colors, because boy, are these suckers dangerous if you guess the wrong way. <laughs> yes. But but I, I did like that they're more or less consistent with the uh, dialing races. How did the SGC ever win a dialing race with anybody else? Well, I think if you're dialing it remotely, that takes a bit longer on the other side. <laughs> You got, you got some lag. You got some gate lag. Yes. <laughs> yeah. If you're on the, if you're on the receiving side, yeah. you ha- you could have an advantage. It would be the only answer I can give you. It's consistent though with the other episode. I thought another bit I wanted to mention that just occurred to me is a uh, Daniel Jackson only figuring out what Tokra means <laughs> after hearing it for like several hours. I thought sure that we had heard that in a previous <laughs> Apparently episode. Not. I really thought that we had it in the Jolinar of Malkshire episode. It, it makes. Absolutely no sense that he sir figures it out here, but it, he does play it kind of amusingly. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, if he had just reminded us, that would have been one thing, but it seemed like he rediscovered it. And I am sure that it was mentioned before. Oh, well. Yeah. The Jackson part I liked was him constantly trying to correct O'Neill about the rudeness about calling them gold. Yeah. Whereas O'Neill is intentionally calling just, them yeah. gold because he wants to get their goat right. to uh, get into their skin right. a little bit. And Jackson's constantly going, uh, uh, uh. I I really quite liked how that was played. That was very nicely done and nicely timed. Yeah. That was back in part one, though. Right. Like O'Neill has has been kind of distrusting them all along. And finally, they prove him right by saying, well, you can't leave. And yeah. Right. They do pretty well with that. Right. Although they're not really evil in doing that, just controlling and Well, he's like, um, they did that to Hammond, right? Where he says, oh, as much for your protection as for mine and for ours. And uh, (laughs) O'Neill was like, yeah, I didn't really buy that myself. Like, yeah. Yeah, Carter was doing a lot of apologia for the Tok'ra in these two episodes, and although she has had the more intimate contact with Jolinar, it does make me wonder, you know, is that a rational decision, or is it just a lingering influence? I I think you're dealing with two sets of people who, I think at this point, Carter has internalized that they are on the same side, and she just finds it really frustrating because these two people are on the same side and they just refuse to act like it. Uh-huh. To me, it, if you can actually break down those doors and you do break them down by putting them in the same body, uh, you, you you remove all of this friction of doubt. And she is over that hump. Mm-hmm. I think it works in that regard. It, it does make the original Joel and our episode seem a little more out of place, but yeah. it was complicated. Yeah. We didn't get to see the, uh, see the scene where Joel and our is threatening the little girl's life. <laughs> like, that would have been hard to connect with these Tok'ra. Yeah, you can say that maybe she didn't really mean it. Oh, she definitely didn't mean it. <laughs> she wouldn't really have killed the little girl. She was just scaring her. Oh. <laughs> well, we'll see how they... I expect this will be more representative of future Tok'ra than uh, the original Jolinar episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But overall, as a three-parter goes, basically being this initial story of uh, Carter's dad, I, I really quite like the three episodes I watched. I thought they held together all yeah. nicely, and you get these nice plot threads across episodes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was really pretty happy with the part one and part two. Boy, I am happy I did not have to wait a week to watch part two. <laughs> I would go ahead and, and, and say that this, this does represent some of the best that SG-1 can do as a series. Don't get your hopes too high, then it's going to get... Huge amount better than this, but it, this is this is good stuff from the show. This is this is them acting through their premise, expanding things, having some good character moments. Yeah, this is the good stuff. All right, so I guess that's going to about do it for this discussion. We'll be back at some point in the future discussing more episodes. For now, um, if any of our listeners would like to continue the conversation with us, you can reach us on Twitter. Dargate underscore SG underscore fun. In addition to thanking our listeners for their time and attention, I'd like to thank you two for another interesting discussion. Happy to be here. Yeah, it was great. All right, well, we'll be talking to you later. (laughs) Bye-bye.